more likely to get it. Merce, back up, MRSA's uh, skin Sta staph So MRSA's staph infection that's uh, resistant to particular antibiotics. Oh God, a virulent staph infection. And so it really just took off. I had like an ingrown hair and then three <gasps> days later my leg was super swollen. And so it was like it really fast acting. Yesterday I was like, I'm not too proud to go to the doctor. And so I'm going up to Zuckerberg. Went to Gus's, got myself a whole bunch of fruit, got some grapes, got a bottle of water, couple bananas. And I went in and they were like, oh yeah, you need to have that drained. Wow. Yeah. And so last night they gave me a local anesthetic. Um, it's a teaching hospital, which I felt really great about because yeah. I got to participate in someone learning how to not do a local anesthetic properly. Oh. Um, and so that was pretty painful. Oh. Um, and also somebody got to learn that. And so I was a part of that process. Wow. And also this morning I was watching MSNBC. I was watching did you have to spend of, the night in the hospital? Wait a minute. I did. They actually gave me the opportunity not to spend the night in the hospital. And I was like, yeah, but it's warm and comfy here. Yeah. And so a night in the hospital.
something to play with. Go and find yourself a toy. Baby, my time is expensive. And I'm not a little boy. If you If you want me to love you, then oh baby, I will. Girl, you know I will. Tell it like it is. Don't be ashamed. Let your conscience be your guide. But I know deep down inside of me. I believe you love me. Oh, get your foolish pride. Life is too short to have sorrow. You may be here today and gone tomorrow. You might as well what you want, so go on and live, baby, go on and live, tell it like it is, I'm nothing to play with, go and find yourself a toy, but I
to tell you what's wrong and what's right. Uh, but when asked about something to eat, uh, they will answer in voices so sweet. Hey, you and he, you and he, by and by, by in that glorious land in the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. Uh, you'll get high in the sky when you die. That's the lie. Now, Joe Hill was executed by the state of Utah November 19th. Writing songs like this. But he left them to us. These are our featured songs. He was then on alternation with huh? It's done Baptist style. I must be some Baptists around here somewhere. Just <laughs> answer back. I sing out a line and then you sing it back and then you sing the line back. Alright? Follow these guys. You will eat, you will eat, by and by, by and by, in that glorious land in the sky, way up high, work and pray, work and pray, live on hay, live on hay, you'll get high in the sky when you die, that's a lie, real vociferous on that last part, all right, and the starvation army they play. And they shout and they clap and they praise uh, When they've got all your coins on the drum And uh, they will tell you when you're on the bomb uh, You will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Now work and pray, live on hay uh, You'll get by in the sky when you die Give your money to Jesus, they say, and you'll eat on that glorious day. Hey, you will eat, you will eat, by and by, by and by, in that glorious land in the sky. I work and pray, live on hay, live on hay. You'll get high in the sky when you die. That's a lie. Working folks of all countries unite. Side by side, we for freedom shall fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, to the grafters we'll sing this refrain. Hey, you will eat, by and by. When you've learned how to cook and how to fry, chop some wood, chop some wood, do you good, and you'll eat in that sweet by and by. And good morning, everybody. This is Labor and Love Radio. Seems like it's been a while since we've met. <clears throat> Looks like everything's up and working today at the Mutiny Radio studio. Mutiny Radio, a full community arts center. Come on down to Mutiny for comedy, for radio, for video. 
for art installations. I'm going to talk a little bit about an art installation today. Uh, one which I wish we could have here at Mutiny, but uh, for a good reason we can't. Um, what do we got for you today? The theme sort of running through this is the future of work. I was at a Zoom meeting with a colleague uh, in the Labor in the Schools Committee and um, a sister made the point that we should be talking as much about the future of work as we talk about the past of work, which is a, a good criticism. Sometimes we get so wound up in telling our stories of the past and the wrongs done to workers and the worker victories that we forget to connect those victories and th those situations to the future, to the present first, and then to the future, which is an imaginary an imaginary construct. Um, so, yeah, when you're talking about labor, when you're talking about things that are going on today in labor, we should be talking about lessons that can be gotten. And we should be thinking about the future of work. So we're going to spend some time today talking about the future of work, specifically two aspects of it. Uh, one of them is a 32-hour week. One of the future, one of the, the uh, things that, that people are thinking about, people are working on, is what would happen if you had a 40-hour work week reduced to 32 and still got the same pay? What would happen? Well, we have a case history of one of those things that happened. The other one, another one is worker co-ops. How do worker co-ops function, and are they competitive, quote-unquote, with regular work situations? I don't know. But we'll find out and we'll have a, an expert telling us. Richard Wolf. We'll be talking about that. And then the, the global, global attention FIFA. What's going on with FIFA? Why are people critical of FIFA? We'll have Dave Zirin talk about that. How Biden has screwed the railroad workers. The railroad workers want something more than one paid day, paid vacation day per year. How dare they? 
How dare they? Okay, so we're going to have our regular world labor report, radio labor. Let's start out with that. Radio labor. This is a radio labor world report recorded on Friday, December 9th, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a special program about the international labor movement and Twitter. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Well, I'm going to tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. They're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. This is Radio Labor. My name is Eric Lee. I'm the founding editor of Labor Start? Labor Start is the labor movement's news and campaigning service. It recently organized a webinar on the use of Twitter. The webinar focused on what the labor movement could do if Twitter shuts down or becomes even more of a forum for extremely nauseous radical right-wing views. It presented possible alternatives such as the social networking service Mastodon. Before Elon Musk bought Twitter, there were massive problems with Twitter, and many people were upset about it. It was seen as a platform that could be used by all the crazies in the world, starting with Donald Trump and everyone else. And it got significantly worse when Musk bought it. And I've identified about four things that should be of concern to all of us. First of all, there's the danger Twitter may close down. Musk himself has raised the possibility of bankruptcy. You may think, oh, they can't close down something. There's millions of users. But that happens all the time on the Internet. If you've been paying attention over the last 20 years, loads of social networks have closed down, sometimes with millions of users. And Twitter, in the end, is a business. It's a profit-making business. It has its servers. It has its lists of users. It can close. And Musk can make the decision himself. He's the owner. He can close it down tomorrow. This is quite significant for unions that have invested a lot of time and effort and money in growing their base on Twitter. Just today, I saw a European Union Federation announcing that it had reached something like 8,000 followers on Twitter. was quite proud of this. But what happens if tomorrow Twitter doesn't exist? Second, Musk himself is not neutral. He doesn't pretend to be neutral. Lots of these tech billionaires act like we just provide a service, we have no views. Musk is not like that. Musk is very clear about his views. His views are far right. A couple of days ago, I just glanced at his Twitter feed because his Twitter stuff pops up immediately. The moment you go into Twitter now, it encourages you to follow him. He has well over 100 million followers. And he was retweeting tweets by quite well-known far-right activists in America. He had no problem with that. Just today, he seems to have banned Kanye West for posting swastikas. That might have been a little bit too far, but basically Musk has identified very strongly with the far-right, and this means that Twitter will become an even worse place to be. Third point is he is reopening Twitter to these people. I mean, he's, he's invited Donald Trump to come back to Twitter. So Twitter will be full of lots of crazy people, and you'll be exposed to them, and your people visiting you will be exposed to them. And Twitter has its own logic for what it shows to you when you come on, and it's a terrible place, going to get a lot worse. And from a trade union point of view, maybe the worst thing about it is Musk's treatment of the people who work there. I mean, the very first thing he did on day one was he sacked pretty much half the company. 
And we know from our workers' trade unionists, when an employer wants to sack employees, there's a process of consultation in the best-case scenario. You consult with the union, you talk to your workers, you negotiate how this is done. That's not what Musk did. Musk just sacked people he didn't like. And then he went on to announce that everyone who remains at Twitter, this is after he closed the offices for a weekend, locked everyone out, then announced if you want to come back and work here, be prepared to work massively long hours with no overtime. So he is a terrible boss. I haven't followed particularly how he's been as a boss at Tesla. I'm guessing he, he was the same. But this is, this is quite in public view. He's acting as a, I own this thing and I will do what I want with it. All these things set off alarm bells ringing for trade unionists. Even trade unions who don't, aren't necessarily particularly left-wing. You don't have to be left-wing to be concerned about the rising tide of racism, for example, on, on Twitter and sexism, which we're going to see much more of. And by the way, Labor Start is in the same position you're all in. We have something like 39,000 followers on our main Twitter account in English, and we have many Twitter accounts. We have uh, accounts in all the major languages and some of the minor ones. We have Canadian accounts in English and, and in French. We have a U.S. account with thousands and thousands of followers. We've invested a huge amount of time in this and energy. And, and my colleague, Derek Blackadder, who could not join us today, has done amazing work growing these um, huge numbers of followers. And we run the same risk you do. So what do we recommend unions doing? First of all, I would argue continue using Twitter while you can, especially if you have a large following. If you just start using Twitter and you've got four followers, forget about it. Don't invest any time in it. If you have tens of thousands of followers, as some of you, you do, don't run away so quickly because you can't just push a button and have them be somewhere else. It's a complicated process to get your followers to come somewhere else. So it's very important that you stay and use Twitter. I'm not suggesting to anybody they leave Twitter. And very few people actually are. I mean, some of the quite famous ones who left Twitter are remaining on Twitter. They're just going to other places like Bastodon as well. I would emphasize that do not abandon your most important and powerful online tools. And that is not Twitter. And it's not Facebook. The most powerful tools you have, and we know this from our experience campaigning, is email and our website. That's the key. If, you, if your union has a good mailing list and a good website. You can do campaigns and all kinds of stuff. You don't need Twitter. But you need those things. And there are unions in many countries that rely on Twitter and Facebook to get their word out and barely have websites and don't have mailing lists. And I think that's a terrible mistake. For us, it's central to our work. There are other social media platforms out there, which if you're not using them, you should be considering using them, not only Twitter. Um, obviously, most importantly, of course, is Facebook which is also a private business owned by Mark Zuckerberg and his colleagues and fellow investors. And it's, um, it has all many of the weaknesses of, of, of Twitter. It's not as awful. But if, you, if it's using Twitter and not Facebook, you should consider having a Facebook presence as well. We also use on LaborStart LinkedIn, which has been surprisingly interesting. Every day, people request to be in the LaborStart group on LinkedIn. We don't know why, so we post to it. But we haven't actually, haven't actually asked anybody to join that group, and yet it has thousands of people. Some of you may be on our, on our LinkedIn group. We also have a presence on Telegram, which we've advocated. It's a very secure network. It's a communications tool like WhatsApp, only more secure. There's not been a lot of traction. To be honest, people are not signing up for Telegram in the labor movement in large numbers. We've also used Instagram. There are other tools we've never used, but that you might consider might be useful for you. Obviously, a top one would be TikTok, which you may know is for short videos. Used widely by politicians. And there's even... Something like Mastodon called Tribal. I took a look at this. Tribal with an E, not an A. T-R-A-B-E-L. Seems to have been launched by liberal Democrats in America. It looked kind of interesting. I couldn't figure out how it worked. 
at the top of your list of Twitter alternatives, if you're thinking, okay, this Twitter is going to be problematic and it may even close, what are we going to do? We're recommending switching to Mastodon, not switching, to using Mastodon in addition to Twitter. So having said all that, now we go to the, the meat of, of the issue. Master, what is Mastodon? Mastodon is a decentralized, open source, and free alternative to Twitter. I know I just lost half of you, right? Like, you know, what, what the heck does he mean by decentralized and open source? All right, fine. We're not all geeks. Some of us are. Mastodon is not new. It's been around since 2016, apparently. That's six years. But its explosive growth has been the last few weeks precisely because of these concerns about Twitter. It has now approximately, on its books, something like 9 million users. A fraction of them are actually online at any given month. But 9 million is actually quite a lot. It's tiny compared to Twitter. But it's still 9 million, and it's growing very, very fast. It has become the most popular talked-about alternative to Twitter that there is, and people are flowing to it in droves. I'll emphasize, you can use both side by side. You could even post the same things to Twitter. Mastodon's what we're doing. Don't rush to close your Twitter account, especially if you have followers. But you can also have a Mastodon account, post to it, and you can encourage people who use your Twitter feed to sign up to Mastodon, as we've been doing. There are even tools, I've not tried them, but there are a number of tools now that will help you find your followers on Twitter if they have Mastodon accounts and encourage them to join you there, which is great. I don't think you'll find that many that way. You have to be prepared for a long, slow process of announcing you have Mastodon, encouraging people through email and Facebook and Twitter to come join you there. Mastodon, at its core, looks like Twitter, but it works in an entirely different way. It is decentralized. It runs on many different servers. Actually, there are thousands of them, apparently. Several thousand. They're calling it, I love these new terms, the Fediverse, which is apparently short for federated social media. In other words, there's no central server. It runs more like email than like any online service we know about. There are potentially millions of servers, meaning that it can't really shut down all that easily. It can't be an Elon Musk who comes along and says, okay, we're done, Mastodon's closing. Mastodon doesn't close. It's a more like a protocol, as email is, that allows people to send messages back and forth to many different servers, which is quite interesting. It can't go bankrupt. It probably won't go offline. It may be a much more secure way of getting your stuff online and keeping it there. For unionists exploring Mastodon, which is spelled M-A-S-T-O-D-O-N, a starting point is the server form called the Union Place. The Union Place currently has about 7,000 members and is administered by labor activist Tim Wilde. Visit Mastodon on the web at joinmastodon.org. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the legal persecution of the leaders of the Belarusian independent trade union movement and the international labor organization's call for the military dictatorship in Myanmar to release from prison a leader of that country's labor movement. We also carried news of the South Korean government's attack on the right to strike and how and why dockers in New Zealand have rejected an attempt to privatize a major port. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found many news items, many, many stories, on how unions around the world are honoring their 16 days of activism commitments, how the National Day of Remembrance is recognized by Canadian unions, 
and the inspiring story of how garment workers in Lesotho are successfully working to end gender violence at work. We also had coverage of the South African government's decision to decriminalize sex work. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes items about a British study on the effects of working in high temperatures on human fetuses, the International Union of Food Workers campaign to end the export from the European Union of pesticides whose use is banned there for health reasons, and a number of stories from different countries about the epidemic of workplace violence directed at healthcare workers. Our current photo of the week is of members of the Ghanaian Timber and Woodworkers Union who are meeting to discuss and update the union's highly successful organizing strategy. LiverStart hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Belarus, Turkey, the Philippines, Canada, Myanmar, and Kazakhstan. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here's the American folk singer Woody Guthrie singing You Fascists Are Bound to Lose. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Okay, that set, we had uh, Woody Guthrie, Fascist Bound to Lose. Guthrie, who famously had a sign on his guitar that said, This machine kills fascists. Oh, you fascists bound to lose. Then Barbara Dane, the redoubtable Barbara Dane, still going. I hate the capitalist system. She just comes right out and says it. A woman who could have had a very, very rich, successful, you know, well-known campaign, you know, identity, could have had a lot of money, chose instead to sing for working people and about working people. Barbara Dane. And the last one, of course, The Chicks. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite country and Western groups. Not ready to make nice. Of course, referring to their comments about the war in Iraq saying that they were ashamed to be from Texas. Later on, they sang, they took a lot of, a lot of negative attention, got a lot of negative attention for that. People, of course, saying, shut up and, shut up and uh, sing. So they didn't shut up, but they did keep singing. Still one of the most popular country and western groups of all time. Natalie Maines and the Chicks. So, speaking of, Umi Abu Jamal, I just got a text reminding me that there's a new There's a new campaign to bring Mumi Abu Jamal home. Mumi Abu Jamal has been writing since age 15, first as Minister of Information for the Philadelphia Black Panthers, 1969-71, then for numerous Philadelphia radio and print venues, including National Public Radio, Mumi is an internationally recognized award-winning journalist known as the Voice of the Voiceless. For his many years spent writing about issues relating to racism in Philadelphia, murder of local MOVE organization people, and more. It's like we have to introduce a whole generation New generation to Mumi Abu Jamal. Mumi is accused of killing 
Philadelphia policeman. Let's see what he's got to say for himself. About for killing Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. He's always maintained his innocence as perhaps America's most famous prisoner. The many problems in Mumia's case plague thousands of cases every day in our court system. People really don't understand what the climate was in Philadelphia in the years before Mumia was arrested. Because if they did, they would look at his arrest and his trial in a different fashion. The U.S. Department of Justice filed suit against the city of Philadelphia, its mayor, and other officials, charging they allowed constant brutality in the city police department. That legacy of police brutality is parallel to an equally ugly legacy of corruption. A federal grand jury indicted 13 Philadelphia police One officers. One of the biggest cases of police corruption in modern United States. In Philadelphia today, seven former policemen were found guilty of corruption. Shortly after the Jamal case had gone to trial, the federal government prosecuted the police department in Philadelphia for corruption. Fifteen of the cops who worked on Mumia's investigation went down on FBI convictions. It was bribery, extortion, manufacturing of evidence to win convictions. All the things that would lead to the kind of um, faking of evidence that we know went on in the Jamal case. Pedro Polakoff, a freelance photographer, was one of the first persons at the scene of the crime. His photographs were dismissed by the prosecution. And there's the guns in the officer's hands. If this photograph was presented in court, they would have dismissed that evidence instantly as contaminated. Apparently, the path that I took to come around the scene to get photos put me right through where a taxi cab was supposed to be that a witness was in. There's no taxi cab there. There was no cab driver that anybody was talking to and I walked right past the cruiser in order to take the photograph. The single most important fact people should know about this case is that there was a fourth person at the crime scene. And the presence of that person at trial was suppressed by the prosecutor, Joe McGill. I was standing on a corner talking locusts, this chit-chatting girl talk, and then we heard gunshots, and I looked across the street to my like, left ankle, and I seen this white person falling. And I kept looking, and I seen these two black individuals running away from him. And regardless of what anybody says, I know what I saw. These eyes don't miss too much, not too much. A few months before Veronica Jones was scheduled to testify in the Abu Jamal trial, she was arrested and jailed on a robbery charge. I couldn't make the bail. They were telling me <clears throat> how they could work a deal with me. They told me all I had to do was name Mumia as the shooter, Mumia Jamal as the shooter, and that they would make sure that I got off one of 15 years, five to 15 years. I was totally confused. I didn't know what to say. I'm looking at a man I've never seen in my life that I'm getting ready to lie on. And I'm looking at these officers that can put me away. So I just thought I just said it's anything. Sorry. 
And again, this is the intimidation that these people have used on people like Veronica Jones. They're talking about the FOP history, this government history. And again, it points to what liars and bullies these people are. Uh, the blacks from the uh, low-income areas are less likely to convict. And as a result, you don't want those people on your jury. The elimination of blacks from juries is, is a problem all over the country. McMahon's tape, unfortunately, uh, detailed a common practice. The experience of black people with police is different. They're much more skeptical of police testimony. So to have blacks on your jury means that they're not going to accept everything that the police officer says, just out of hand. And I think whites have a very different uh, experience with police officers in this country. But when you look at the context of police brutality in Philadelphia, in the context of systemic injustice in Philadelphia, what happened to Momia happens to so many other people. And the reason why we are here, really, is because approximately one year ago, there was a great discovery in this case. New exculpatory evidence in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal that says and suggests clearly that the main witness was bought off by the cops and by the prosecutor to finger Mumia. For our family, we've like been on hold waiting for Mumia to come home. We expect Mumia to come home. Okay, that's the case of Mumia Abu Jamal. And um, it's been such a long time now that we have to reintroduce a whole new, whole new generation new population to this case. This is a clear case of injustice that who knows why a police officer was killed so the police want someone to go up for it and they don't want to let go of Mumia even though it's obvious to a lot of people that he was framed. Even if you don't accept the fact that he was framed it's highly highly unlikely that he could have received a fair trial given the nature of the judge. As you go further and further into this case, you realize that this was just another case of someone who was there and who the police wanted to get rid of, so they put it on him. Similar case as Leonard Peltier in South Dakota, a couple of FBI people were killed in a shootout in South Dakota. Almost 100 years to the day of the Custer massacre. And they, the Justice Department, fixed on Peltier. He had gone to Canada and they illegally kidnapped him in Canada and brought him back to face trial for murder, and he was convicted. Another very, very uh, painted trial and, and 
prosecution. Well, these two, I mean, find out about these two. These are causes of progressive people for a generation. All right, this is Labor and Love Radio, and I'm the B, and we're here to tell you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. And we're here to tell you that if you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. All right, well, let's check out. This is our theme for today is uh, the future of work. And we're talking specifically about worker co-ops, and a 32-hour work week. Now let's see what we can find out about that. Worker co-ops, Richard Wolf. Daily Blab, Red Taylor, one of 32 hour work. I wanted to play that one next. The idea is. for a 32-hour work week. Every moment that I I think it really came home when I had with kids, you realize you'll have this kind of 18-year window, and then it's done. But every moment that I have with my kids, I realize there's something I can't, I can never buy back. No matter how much money I make or how powerful I get, I can't buy time. I don't have that long to spend with people I love. And I, I'm not going to be at my keyboard at 9 p.m. on Friday night because there's no life there. Treehouse is an online school, and our goal is to take adult students from zero to job ready in as little as six months for only 25 bucks. So we have about 100, 135,000 students around the world, and I think about 85 full-time employees, and I think we'll be at about 100 pretty soon. So we came up with the idea of the 32-hour work week when I was sitting on the couch with my wife. I think it was a Saturday night, and she just turned to me and said, what is this? thought we could control our life now that we ran our own company, but we seem to be, you know, working a lot more. And my initial reaction was, come on, there's just too much work to do. And then I thought about it. I thought, you know, right. there's no rule. You have to work 40 hours. You have to work more to be successful. 
47 hours of work per week. Nearly four more weeks per year than they did in 1979. I'm Andrew Chalkley, and I'm an expert teacher at Treehouse. I create online uh, curricula for people wanting to get into the tech industry. Well, I'm married to Lauren. I've got a seven-year-old daughter called Hello. Imogen, a three-year-old Henry, and a baby George. Henry is a handful. Uh, he's needed a lot more attention than what Imogen, our eldest, has needed. So having me home, playing with him more, helping him stimulate and grow, just having the full-time job, the, the stability of that, and still see those glimpses of the kids growing up, doing more things with them. I get to do some of those jobs that maybe Lauren would have had to have done, especially juggling that with another two young kids at home and one at school is kind of a nightmare. Whereas like with Treehouse, nowhere near like the intensity of this treadmill that you're constantly on. You're defined by those five days and those two. That ratio is just crazy now. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm doing all this for this. That myth of like more hours equals more productivity is totally false because people just hate the jobs, hate the managers, hate the bosses and resent the fact that they don't have time to spend with the people that they love. It was pretty shocking. <laughs> I thought Ryan was nuts and I would say that I was very strong in the opinion that it made no sense to cut your, your workforce's man hour time by 20%. But I'm not a skeptic anymore. There's a lot of value that the 32-hour work week provides. A lot of it is hard to measure, though. If you're going to break it down to just dollars and cents, then, you know, of course, it's going to cost us more on a per-hour basis for people to work on things. But the intangible benefits that we've seen are priceless. I think that when people aren't overworked, the chance for that light bulb or epiphany moment or whatever you want to call it to go off is, is increased. But, you know, I think with, with Treehouse, it didn't come out of a place of, we need to foster creative energy. It was more of a, we want to take care of our people, as opposed to, you know, work harder and you know, go through life without enjoying some of the things that we all should be spending more time enjoying. I think hard work is great. I mean, I work really hard, you know, Monday to Thursday. I think it's hard for us because we view it as moral. You know, I'm working hard. I'm busy, um, you know, it's good, and yet it doesn't really always yield results. If anyone says, we can't do it because we raise money, no, not true. You know, we can't do it because we need fast revenue growth. No, we've done that. It's really down to people to choose. Are you going to talk about how it would be nice to actually work less, or are you going to do something about it? And the truth is a lot of CEOs are workaholics, and that's why they're not going to do it. Not, not because their company can't, and I think that's wrong. We've proven that you can take it from an experiment to something that's actually doable for real companies, for real people in you know, highly competitive markets. Right now, we're able to compete against scary companies like Google and Facebook for talent because we pay full salaries and we give you full benefits. And we basically take ridiculously good care of people because we think it's the right thing to do. I think this is about having a more balanced total life. Um, it's not about, you know, 
more family time or more play time or, or less work time. It's about saying, hey, we are fortunate to live in a period in human history where it's possible to work less. I don't believe there's an afterlife or anything like that, so this is it. It makes it even more important that we spend you know, our moments carefully. The other side is based on the work of a guy named Frederick Taylor. Frederick Winslow Taylor, Scientific Management Theory. And if what we just heard about the 32-hour week is one side of it, then this is the other. Scientific Management. Scientific management explained. And there's a picture of workers at McDonald's. <clears throat> and we're not getting it. California considers 32-hour work week. Lawmakers propose 32 hours for private sector employees. And they want us to have a Okay, let's just go on. One aspect is a 32-hour work week. Another aspect is Richard Wolff. Richard Wolff talking about worker co-ops. Work. Responding to another Prof. Wolf question, and... This comes from our Patreon community, as always, and in this case, from Ahmad Sharam. And I want to answer Ahmad Sharam's question, because it is like many questions that you send me that have to do with what co-ops, worker co-ops, are designed to do. How are they an improvement on your typical capitalist corporation? And in particular, uh, are they efficient? Can they compete efficiently with capitalist corporations? So let me respond briefly. If you want a more thorough discussion, uh, I would recommend two things to you. One, the book I wrote trying to answer such questions, which is called Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. But even more, I want to direct you to the research on efficiency of co-ops, or more precisely, on systematically comparing the efficiency of worker co-ops with capitalist, hierarchical, employer-employee structured enterprises. 
And here we have a body of research. I'm going to give you the name and the university affiliation of the researcher. She has done wonderful work. It's worth your pursuing. You can use the usual internet search tools to find her work. So first, her name. Virginie, it's French, Virginie, and Perrotin is her last name, P-E-R-O-T-I-N, P-E-R-O-T-I-N. She is a professor of business. at the Business School of Leeds University in England, L-E-E-D-S. I recommend highly the work she has done because it goes specifically to this issue of the efficiency, the comparative, and this is her research results, greater efficiency of worker co-ops over capitalist enterprises. So let me start with that finding and then work my way back to more fully answer Ahmad Sheram's question. Why would the worker co-op be more efficient? Well, the answer is simple and very old. If workers own and operate and run the enterprise, they have a commitment to it, a feeling for it, a loyalty toward it that you will never get from employees who are told what to do from the minute they arrive at the workplace in the morning until they leave in the evening, or with modern technology and electronics even beyond when they leave in the evening. The worker who is the owner-operator of his, her own business, together with the other employees, goes that extra step that an employee often doesn't. If the light is on on your way out, you flick the switch to turn it off no point in wasting your enterprise's electricity. If you see something that needs fixed, you arrange to fix it. You have a feeling of ownership, if you like, a feeling of engagement. This is your business, together with the other workers, rather than the boss's business. It's a very fundamental distinction. Uh, people don't want to use it when it comes to enterprises but it applies there just as it does across the board everywhere else. So there's no mystery why you would be more efficient. A worker who's an employee has to worry if there's a new technology, a new more efficient way of doing something, if he or she brings it to the boss's attention. Will they do it and then fire the worker? In a worker co-op enterprise where there's a commitment primarily to the community of workers, that's what co-op means, then there is no such fear. If a new invention makes some function unnecessary, the enterprise will find other things for you to do or find you another position. That's part of the ethos of a worker co-op-based economy. So what is it that worker co-ops really offer? Two or three things that are basic. First, democracy. That's right. A worker co-op brings democracy into the workplace. 
from which capitalism excludes it. In a capitalist enterprise, all the basic decisions, key decisions of the enterprise, what to produce, what technology to use, where to locate production, and what to do with the profits that everybody's work helps to generate, those decisions are made by a tiny group of people at the top, the owner of the enterprise, the major shareholders, if it's not an individual or a family, the board of directors selected by the major shareholders. That tiny group, one, two, five, 10, 15, 20 people at most, in most cases, they make all the decisions, even if there are hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees. The employees live with decisions made by other people over whom they exercise no authority. The employees don't vote for the employer. We all as residents of communities vote for the mayor or the governor or the president who rules, but we have some power. Once you enter the workplace, the factory, the office, the store, you have no power anymore. Democracy is excluded. The CEO is like the king. We got rid of kings years ago in public society where we live, but they snuck into the enterprises and they continue to rule us there. Worker co-ops are the end of monarchy inside the enterprise. So if you like democracy, if you believe in democracy, if you think democratic ways of organizing communities are the way to go, are worth a try, then you ought to be interested in worker co-ops because they're the way to bring democracy inside the workplace. Capitalism has always, and by principle, excluded it. Do you want to have some say over the decisions that affect your life? That's what democracy means. That's what worker co-ops give you. And where? At the workplace. How important is that? Well, let's see. Five out of seven days, the best hours of the day, you're at work. If democracy belongs anywhere in our society, it belongs first and foremost where most adults spend most of their adult life at work. That's the single most important. And the other one is, in a work co-op, in a workers' co-op, one of the things traditionally has been that you organize the work process for the person, not organize the person for the work. Sure, there's some compromise here. You want the work to be effective. You want the product to be useful and safe. But you're also taking care of the worker. That does not enter into the mind of the employer. The employer can replace the worker who doesn't work out with another one. It's a different mentality. So, for example, in worker co-ops, workers rotate it. So you're not always doing the same thing, which is mind-numbing and body bad for your body, etc. You rotate, you move around, you give people a chance to develop not just the work skill, but the skill of running the enterprise, because it's the workers who have to do it. Everybody, in a sense, has two job descriptions. The particular task you do and your part in designing and running 
the enterprise, because that's what a worker co-op is. Remarkable improvement over capitalism, and Virginie Perrotin shows us it's more efficient too. Therefore, there's no reason not to make the transition from capitalism to a worker co-op based economy because it's the better way to go. This is Richard Wolf, Democracy.
Hey, <clears throat> Edda James there, and as we always remind you, you got to serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Don't think that the decisions you make during your day are meaningless. The sum total of all the decisions made every day by everybody give us our unjust society that we have now. So somebody is making decisions to keep it going. No matter what you say, you're going to have to serve somebody. And before that, we had Clarence Cooper and the CIO, organized workers who are putting out tanks for World War II. And before that, it could be a wonderful world. If workers, for example, were in control of the means of production, it could be a wonderful world. If people had more time to spend with their families, like 32-hour-a-week people were saying, it could be a wonderful world. You gotta serve somebody. Okay. Right on cue. Hello. Hello, Vita. <clears throat> I'm okay. Can let's see. Go ahead, say something. Okay, try it again. Okay. That time I got you. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, our correspondent from um, the world of the young workers. Vita, <clears throat> I understand you just returned from a trip overseas. Where did you go? Oh, okay. And um, how did that work out? It was great. It was a beautiful trip, beautiful. Uh-huh. Oh, that's good. So you had some time to uh, really get into it. Okay, well, uh, welcome to Labor and Love. You're a regular on the show. And I'm wondering, today's theme is... The future of labor. Okay, now you as a working person, as a college graduate, um, certainly I'm sure have a point of view or an expectation or some kind of idea about your future as a working person. Could you talk a little about that? Absolutely. Um, well, something that I've found is also part of finding a job and making yourself indispensable in a job and that they seem to like employers or companies seem to feel like if you uh, have like a social media presence it adds to like your viability and how valuable you are in that company mm -hmm. so it's something that I've noticed 
personally. And I also feel like it has helped, you know, when job and being in the workforce that there's like a idea that you and the sense of I don't know, that's just something I've seen. But regardless of that, it's like also the feeling that you have to And that you know, you're not gonna be replaceable so easily. And to try to, cause you know, like all the layoffs recently where they just laid off so many people and it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of crazy, you know, it makes you think like, well, if these people who are very well educated or very, you know, good workers, they could be laid off so easily. Well, then what about everybody else? You know, so just that it's important to find your niche and to be the type of person who could adopt your skills, adapt your skills to anywhere you go, sort of. Okay. As part of our examination, you know, of the future of work, we've taken up some some subjects. One of them is um, a 40-hour week, okay, which is sort of the standard, although not many people can get get over with working 40 hours. Right. Some Some businesses have realized that quality of life is very important, and they've lowered the work week to 32 hours with the same pay as 40. The people that we showed on, on our examination were very positive about it, and so how, how much does quality of life enter into your expectation of a workplace? Well, especially coming back from Europe, like I saw how people live so differently and that they, like, really value being, you know, like, what's the word? Like having, having that work-life balance uh -huh. where you, where you sort of like know that you, what's important to you is spending time with your family and friends or having time for leisure. So it's kind of changed my feelings about it a little bit in that, I think that um, I think that it's important, and I think that I want to do that, but I also feel that sense of I want to be competitive in like my work or in my field, and right, like right, like go up in the ranks, you know. So, I mean, I guess in America we just have a sort of different idea about it. We, uh, you know, statistically, we work harder than any other uh, developed country. We put in more hours. One of the other things that, that we examined was worker co-ops. Do you know much about worker co-ops where the workers own a company uh, collectively and run it together? Uh, yeah, well, what was your question about it? My question is, does this enter into your examine your expectation of work? In, in other words, would you 
be open to working at a worker co-op if the, a job yeah, like that were offered cool to, to you? work at a it would be cool to work at a worker co-op um because i think a lot of the time in a lot of the time in companies there's like politics being played that don't aren't affected by your merit or how well you actually do or work in a job like people will just basically like suck up to the boss or act a certain way or throw people under the bus or take credit for someone else's work and then move up and it's unfair so i think something like a co-op would be cool and that it would equalize a lot of the issues that are in companies that don't you know behave that way yeah well a good example of a company like that is uh twitter elon musk elon musk just fired half the, the workers at twitter if right. it were a co-op he wouldn't have that right you know over people's lives okay and the other thing was working from home is that something you'd be open to if you had a an opportunity to uh, get a job where you could do most of your work from home? Uh, yeah, I think it's nice, but a complaint I've heard is that they end up like wanting you to work more because ah. you're at home and the work hours aren't as like set in stone as in other situations. You know, yeah. so um, I don't know. You know, I I like the idea of it, but it can also get overwhelming, I would imagine. But I mean, I haven't really worked much yet, so I don't know. But I think in some ways it's cool because then you don't have to worry about commute or saving money in other ways. But I'm sure some companies like definitely still find a way to make that work for them and maybe pay you less because they're like, oh, well, you're not spending money on gas or you're not spending money or you're not spending time coming here. So work longer, you know? Right. And yeah, or maybe just assigning you more work, more work, more work. The more you do, right. the more you, you know, the more you get. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, although there would seem like benefits, I'm sure there's already, you know, people that they've hired to make sure that the companies aren't losing money or like giving too much benefits to the workers. Yeah, I, th I think uh, this is a bottom line. I mean, the bottom line is between quality of life and the profit motive, you know. So if you, you, know, you spend your whole life working, working, working to make someone else rich or, or you know, well off, You've given your whole life. Otherwise, uh, you know, you have to stick up for your your own uh, quality of life. You know, for oh, yourself. okay. Yeah, anyway, I get that. Anyway, Absolutely. I want to thank you. Your insights have been really good and interesting. Any more comments, say, about your past work experience, things that could have been improved? Um. Well, yeah. I like I, I was drawing from my past work experience when I was talking about politics in the office, it was a hard lesson for me at the place, at a place I used to work at, uh -huh. in which um, there was a really toxic work environment in that there was one person who was over me, 
who would like sort of try to take credit all the time or just act like oh you know like whatever they're doing like what or not be clear and they were supposed to be giving me instructions or directions but they would instead like just be very lazy about it and expect me to take the fall for everything that they do and then it got to a point where like I tried to hold that person accountable and they sort of made me pay for it in one way or another and they had such a way of being manipulative or like getting on the boss's good side that it kind of just you know it kind of like didn't I never really was able to get any credit for my work and I would just get credit for the things that went wrong it's like (laughs) not really my fault but then i learned that it's a thing to like always make the person on top of you look good and you should never make them look bad because you know that's apparently a thing so i I learned that the hard way you're reminding me of work experiences um where you were you were sent out on a job but the the person in charge wouldn't tell you what you had to do. So you ended up standing around or trying to connect up with other people or ask fellow workers, you know, who often were the only ones who would help you. But uh, bosses sometimes do that in order, like you say, to preserve their, their position and sort of hoard the knowledge of the job. Yeah. Yeah. And to like, Sort of, because they're lazy, and then you pay for that. Man. Okay, I, I really want to thank you, and I really appreciate your insights into the world of work. Thank um, you. The uh, the world of work. Uh, yeah. Um. So have a good week and good work, and hopefully we'll be uh, we'll be talking soon. And hello to your significant other. Thank uh, you. He's not here, but I'll. I'll tell him you say so. Okay, please do. And um, have a good day. Talk to you soon. You too. Thank you for letting me be on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, When you come across with insights like that, it's my pleasure. All right. Thank you. Okay. Ciao. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, that was um, Vita, who's sort of our young worker, um, She's graduated now from university, so she's going to be out there soon looking for work, like so many other people, and it's a hard market now because uh, people like Elon Musk are laying people off. Okay, how about a little California love?
like a slug to your chest. Like a vest for your Jimmy in the city of sex. We in that sunshine state for the bomb ass him be. The state where you never find a dance floor empty and pimp speed. On a mission for them greens. Lean, mean, money making machines, serving fiends. I've been in the game for 10 years making rap tunes. Ever since honeys was wearing Sassoon, now it's 95 and they clock me and watch me diamond shining. Looking like a Rob Liberace. It's all good. Okay, well, that's our show for today. Our theme was the future of work. And um, let's see if we can get Kaori Mirage to send us out. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is, where you work. 
put on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor, only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Hang in there, coming up right now is Flat Black Plastic with your host, Gatto, a resident artist here at Mutiny Radio, or one of them. Um, have a good week and good work. Is that the black Santa Claus? I want a super Nintendo. Under this tree in my house 
house is mine, my bike that, and it's plastic nine to do fine till next year come. I try to see the same thing, they got us brainwashed up. And when you find it ain't no Santa Christmas, still mean a lot, cause it's the time to get together and give all you got. You got food, good moods, and what's better than together with your people? Swear wishes, give a toast by the tree, it's Merry Christmas. Santa Claus on the ceiling, Jack Frost chilling, pinch the Grinch for being a holiday villain, season's greetings, all the proceeds are brought to you by the church house where we'll be eating, chestnuts roasting on the open fire, singing my jingle, where is Chris Kringle? I didn't cop and I ain't even shout I even stayed in the house when the homies tried to sneak me out Now all I want for Christmas is my 6 foot Chevrolet And a granddaughter for her grandmother Beverly Ain't that something? Nah, ain't that nothing How it's Christmas time and my rhyme steady bumping Everybody happy, hair still nappy Gonna steal a gift for my old grandpappy Catch me giving out turkeys at the church house Don't try to work me, just stand in line And everything gonna be fine Holla at your folks, boys, going down. down. Ain't no helps from no elves, just a dog pan. Okay. And we passing our gifts, uh-huh. blazing up splits. Sure. Christmas on the road, can you dig it? Can you dig it? Santa Claus. I believe 76 was the year Girls and boys full of joy with the season cheer Smell the sky, hella pies and cakes getting baked To be ate after everything gone off your plate But wait, not the night, it's straight beans and rice On the table, are we able to receive tonight? I wonder what the morn bringing so it's hard to doze off Three o'clock in my socks, I crack the dough so Hoping when I open the door, I see Santa. Now who the hell is this in this blue bandana? Messing with the boxes that's up under the tree. Look like Santa Claus then crossed into a woman to me. Now I'm coming to see the whole picture get clearer. How we have less as X mess get nearer. Mirror, mirror, please, it seems I've been deceived. And thank it's ain't trick for the gifts I receive. So I freak back and act like I ain't even peeped it. This'll be me and mom's private seat. Santa Claus is coming straight to the ghetto. Santa Claus is coming straight to the ghetto. I want a Super Nintendo Sega Genesis Street Fighter 2 Gang 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 Gang
Whenever I'm out with the gangsters and thieves, celebrated, posted up with eggnog head and up in my cup. Put Rudolph and Moses, Lil Bang Bang, and they coasting down the block. But be careful for the heart because it's posted. Some say to this day that Christmas ain't nothing but another day. But out of respect, I gotta give the Lord his day. Tell me, tell me, where do the homeless and bums got to sleep? Nowhere. Where do the hungry and the needy greedies got well, to okay. eat? Life is so crucially cold. That's for for the children in this world. They hopes and dreams can't afford. The younger old churches is filled with your dreams. Seasonal things hurt throughout the ghetto reaches gangsters and dope fiends. Uh, Cause those who ain't able to get it, I can finally get it. Cause the ghetto Santa Claus sprinkle the hood. Now we born and living to a new year. A better thing, celebrate with some champagne. Ha ha, check it. Santa Claus. First day of Christmas, my homeboy gave to me a sack of that crazy glue and told me to smoke it up slowly. Now on the second day of Christmas, my homeboy gave to me a fifth of hen dog and told me to take my mind off that weed. Now by the third day of Christmas, my big homeboy gave to me a whole lot of everything and it wasn't nothing but game to me. Back then you woke up to the sound I saw mama kissing Santa made you reminisce on the old fashioned Christmas days. Dismiss a fat man jolly with joy down your chimney with toys for little girls and boys. Pumped up, I jumped up before the sun peeped in and hoped to catch a Santa Claus creeping down my hall. Went to the window, put my eyes to the sky to see if I could see the sleigh that parlay and push the fat guy. I sigh, ain't no sign, but everything under this tree in my house is mine. My bike, that, and this plastic nine to do fine till next year come. I try to see the same thing, they got us brainwashed up. And when you find it, ain't no 